Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Jordan Taylor-Bartels, Managing Director at Magic and CEO of Conundrum. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for having um, Thanks for sparing the time to, to have a chat. It's an interesting time in advertising, that's for sure. It it's, is um, interesting because... Um, you know, technology has really been driving innovation in in advertising and marketing, hasn't it? It really has, and it's it's turning out, as everyone's well aware, in the last six months to be a very very different shift. Um, and and how sticky that shift is is no one's really going to know until you know probably two or three years time. But we are potentially witnessing you know a cataclysmic or a once in a ten year event really for, for advertising. Um, where what we did you know, for these last three, four years will be completely removed. You're talking about the cookie apocalypse, aren't you? The, uh... the cookie apocalypse. It's kind of been overdone a bit and <laughs> it, it's been talked to death, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, it, it's our publishers scrambling, it's, it's third-party providers scrambling, um, it, it's people defending it, there's people for it. Um, there's, you know, coincidentally, there's the whole ethics behind it as well. So. It really is an interesting shift that we're about to see. But look, it's definitely a topic of interest. It's just um, how how well can people answer it um, beyond just speculation is kind of where it gets really interesting. You think Google are also scrambling a bit because you know they've. I think it's been delayed two or three times, hasn't it? I think it has. I mean, now it's. Oh, we speak to um, you know, the Google Cloud team quite regularly, to be honest, um, and. They're not entirely sure, I don't think, on what the solution is. Um, you know, we've seen Flock and all these things appear um, in some kind of proactive fashion. Um, but I think that you know it, it really is Apple versus the world at this point. And I think the, the relationship that once was you know a, a bit contentious or toxic between Google and Apple, I think you know particularly on Google's side, they're looking to repair that very quickly. But look, I think generally, I think it's always too much pepper, it's too much salt, and then you usually find that just right in the middle eventually, whether it's politics, whether it's advertising, whether it's relationships. Well, it's interesting that you see this as the clash of the titans in a way because Apple has always maintained this idea of uh, uh, outstanding customer experience and clearly Mm. privacy is part of that. Google, on the other hand, has always you know, maintained do no evil, but a lot of what the value of their company is is actually providing access and insights to users of their products, aren't they? I mean, one of the think- reasons that so much of Google's product is free is because they make their money from third parties accessing that data and information through either advertising or SEO or, or the like. A paid think, for me. Yeah, no, I think I think directly. I think for a long time, and even to this day, I think people forgot that they really are the product themselves. Um, I think you know there was the whole you know, revolution really around and social networking and and kind of breaking down barriers of communication across worlds. Um, 
across societies, religions, etc. that people kind of got lost in the romance of it all and, and really forgot that, you know, look, how are companies like Facebook, um, like Google, how are they employing tens and tens of thousands of people producing, you know, amazing technologies that seemingly come out of nowhere or are updated every 24 hours um, without effectively monetizing really the product, which was, which was all the people using it and exploring it, you know, find the amazing things that happen with, with social connection. And then uh, subsequently, you know, it's also the darker side about, you know, understanding really what people think and how that, how they perceptively or what their intent might be for a particular action. So I am quite interested in understanding why people kind of blocked that whole sort of piece out um, and, and really just sort of gave themselves up to, to I guess, you know, effectively one singular company. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, we have had media generally before all this, you know, television, radio, newspapers, magazines, uh, all supporting their content or editorial based on advertising. But it was so visible, you know, it was like in your face. Then along comes uh, Google and Facebook, and yes, the ads are there, but really the value is not in just placing the advertising, is it? It's the information that they collect about us mm -hmm. as we're using these platforms, and even, you know, ironically, when we're not using them, you know, because a lot of the, you know, you download an app onto a phone and you give permission for them to collect a whole lot of data about things that you're using generally. Yeah, I think it, it's a really good point, actually. I think it really comes down to, do people even know what big data is, right? Um, you know, people who should know probably don't know, really, even just at a general level, what big data is and how it's collected and how it's used. But essentially, on these social media platforms, there's a behavioural analysis piece, i.e. collecting data points to understand interactions. Um, there's kind of the, the data science translation of it, which kind of interprets all those complex numbers and you know, millions of rows of, of data. And then it's effectively executed by a piece of ad technology. And that ad technology is Facebook. That is the Facebook app. Um, it's, you know, how do we showcase or utilise this data? Um, how do we get publishers to, to intervene and, you know, place their product or service or idea um, into a user journey or into a moment that we think is is aligned, and, and it's kind of been harped on a, a fair bit to be honest over the last ten years. But we are we did really see this shift away from you know the big creative directors of the of the surname agencies globally um, pushing creative ideas down to users. And I think if anything, this big data revolution, which was kind of at the forefront via social media apps. Um, has completely shifted that. You know, no longer do we have to guess if a piece of creative works. Um, we can already, you know, have some kind of inclination or at least a gathered prediction as to whether a piece of creative will resonate with a particular audience. And this is all down to the the algorithms that Facebook have. Um, you know, we were reading content yesterday on TikTok's attention algorithms where they basically tag up every single frame and every single pixel to differentiate colours, to differentiate movement. Um, and that, you know, if you do swipe away from a TikTok ad um, at a certain time, at a cer certain kind of pixel level, that they can then learn from that and you will never see anything like that again. Yeah. Um, I, I really think, though, that the fact that people aren't understanding what big data is, um, be it users, 
you know, be agencies, to be honest, um, be it brands, that this is why we've seen this kind of imbalance and this is why we've seen, you know, a disproportionate action potentially taken is because people really aren't understanding, one, how or what data is being collected and, and how it's being used, and secondly, how is my data being stored? So, Jordan, I just want to go back a step because in my introduction of you, I, I, I sort of ran through managing director at Magic. Uh, let's uh, let's please assure me that this doesn't mean you're in charge of a Harry Potter set or something. You know, no, no, it's be in it's, charge of a managing director of Magic. So, Magic, I won't plug this too hard. I, I um, Magic is a digital lab that I guess represents this collision between data science and marketing media. Um, we, we, we care so much about it that we've kind of, you know, tapped onto the tagline of, of mad men to math men. Um, and something that we care so much about that we even trademarked it um, just because our egos are that strong. Um, but in, in essence, what we represent is we represent pushing the boundaries to the cutting edge um, using data only t- to justify decision-making. Um, I think data first is, is something that everyone kind of uses, but no one actually does, right? It's it's something where we rely on all decision-making and simply use client um, interaction as context to that decision-making. And it, to be honest, it's allowed us to do some pretty incredible stuff. Like we, we've been able to um, understand psychographics um, of particular cohorts and, you know, shape our communication to suit um, to suit those certain um some graphic profiles. Yeah. Um, we've, we've been able to interconnect really complex user journeys so we can understand that, you know, this whole thing about Facebook going down, um, we've actually reversed that and gone, well, let's start using Facebook um, as a channel that has a purpose, even with these, you know, with the cookies being removed, what can we use with Facebook? How does it fit into user journeys? And it's, it's really meant that our clients have not only been able to um, scale their, their their impact, but you know anywhere from CMO communicating to a CEO, they've been able to prove it. Yeah. Um, and beyond just you know Google dashboards and and all those things, but intrinsic or specific data that shows immediate connections from marketing budgets, which are always the first thing to be cut, and actual results. So, yeah, one of the great uh, promises of uh, data and data or big data, data analytics, was that it was going to allow us to get closer and closer to the point of cause and effect. You know, yeah. and, and what we've seen in place is largely attribution models that can vary from virtually no value whatsoever. You know, Blind Freddy making a guess would do better than some of the attribution mm-hmm. models that you see. And, and an example of that was uh, I had a client and their attribution model would attribute to uh, you know, mainstream media like TV and radio for 90 seconds, but for the post it would be up to six weeks for traditional direct mail. So it was quite mm-hmm. interesting that they would uh, you know, have such flagrant uh, variations. Right up to it's getting quite good, isn't it? But we still aren't actually at cause and effect, are we? No, I don't think we, uh, to be honest, well, no, cookies allowed that, right? And then it, cookies was kind of building us towards this thing. It was, you know, half my marketing spends working. I just don't know which half. Um, and, you know, we were working towards that um, as, as a collective, I guess. 
But I think when it comes to attribution, it's like, cool, well, we, I think the question that we need to start asking is which part of the user journey do we really want to answer? Um, which part are we kind of willing to understand that, you know, bygones be bygones? Like we won't know the, we can't be, we can't be predictable, right, um, about how unpredictable we are. So I think this is where we start getting stuck. And I think we've got an over-reliance and we've seen, you know, predictive um, analytics now taking a significant shift, which is kind of what Conundrum's turning into, um, which is another data science project we're running. Um, we've seen, you know, uh, audit software come out, but in the end, the audit software is purely relying on last click. Um, it's impossible to, to disregard all that effort that people do at the top of the funnel. Um, I really think that, you know, this cookie shift will potentially separate those who rely so heavily on, on publisher-led analytics um, and really push you know, brands, big, small startups or you know, enterprise to start wanting to own that user journey a bit more and own that data um, as opposed to you know, relying on the real estate agent to tell you when to sell your house, um, which will always be today. <laughs> so I think um, as we start seeing this shift, I think businesses will start feeling more empowered. And I guess as we have see businesses become more empowered, um, the responsibility around data cleaning, data storage, and data privacy will have to improve because suddenly the accountability is on you know, the brand and not on you know, billion or $100 billion or trillion dollar companies. Because we really have seen some big shifts, you know, and, and one of the reasons that we're here today is because, you know, over the last, let's say, five years, and it, it's, from my perspective, it started in Europe. The Europeans were very, uh, the EU was very clear that they believed that uh, consumers had a right to privacy and that they had a right to know what their personal data and information was being used for. Because there were a lot of abuses, weren't there? There were a lot of people that were you know, using data in a way that wasn't in the best interests of the end user or the consumer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, the most obvious um, case study for this was anything to do with you know, political campaigns, be it you know, subtly on Australian shores um, to you know, the big one in, in 2016 um, in the US to Brexit. Um, you know, it, it's, it's about how are you using data to influence decisions and what is that decision? Um, you know, there are certain things that you, it's a transaction, right? There's certain things where, and this kind of comes to the ethics of it, there's certain things where it moves from a transactional exchange, um, one where the repercussions of, of you know, being coerced into, into purchasing something is, you know, $29.95 versus something that, um, you know, can shape global politics, um, can shape even local communities. I think that's where... Now, this, this larger piece of data ethics has really come come to the fore. What's your um, definition? You know, because we use uh, words like ethics and data ethics. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's always interesting because, uh, you know, the Ethics Centre here in Sydney has uh, a lot of discussions in, especially in a business forum around the idea of ethics. And some people say it's doing the right thing. But do you have a, a functional definition that you work with? 
Uh, we typically, but we do. The way we approach this is is split into two. Um, the first one is you know the, tra- the, the the transaction, right, or the consequence of of using data. Um, I think that one is is openly not really the one that's up for debate. Um, it's the storage. So when it comes to data storage ethics, um, this is where we're seeing a lot of Apple's um, you know, marketing campaigns are leaning to. And unfortunately, the, the transactional nature of data, i.e. I give you X data so you give me relevant ads back, um, has been caught up in this. So for us, when we talk around data ethics, it's one around uh, manipulation um, of the end user but it's also scaled into the, con- the, the severity of the consequence of, of what that transaction means. Um, for us, data storage is probably the most important thing. Um, how is data being stored? How is you know, personally identifiable information being received? Who can see it? Um, and, and how can it be accessed? And then now, obviously, with cookies disappearing, the question now comes into, and how long am I holding it for? And these are really questions around ethics that I think should be the, the focus of the focus of data or marketing data ethics, as opposed to the how much data am I giving up and what am I getting back for it? Because there is a huge uh, business, isn't there, in people trading data, you know, collecting it for one purpose and then bundling it up and uh, providing it uh, to other parties, to third parties. Absolutely, there's business models built on it. Um, and there are business models particularly that, that have built upon cookie data um, where, you know, uh, they're obviously having, they'll be having some sweaty boardroom meetings now um, trying to figure out how or if or when they should pivot. Um, am, am I against businesses that um, mine data and then sell it? You know what, probably not. Um, I think, you know, the data that people give off online, um, these aren't, you know, bank account IDs and bank account passwords. That's not specifically what we're talking about when we talk about data capture. Um, what we're talking about is more around um, the nature of the data that's being captured. Um, how is it being used? You know, as the evolution of like, computational analytics is, is kind of spooling up, it's like, well, you know, how will this data eventually be used? Um, you know, doing a MyDNA saliva test, you know, how will that data be used? Um, this is kind of where we're pivoting um, sort of conversations now. And I think people are becoming far more aware of that little checkbox you, you get when you kind of complete a, a survey or a form or you're signing up to a newsletter. I think people are becoming far more aware of what they're actually giving up. Except that, you know, it's not really informed consent, is it? Because... Uh, they managed to give you 57 pages in the smallest font type possible, where buried in that is what they're actually going to use the data for. You know, it's it's an interesting uh, concept in form consent. It's used a lot in medicine. It's used in legal mm-hmm. terms. It's used in financial services, you know, that you shouldn't sign a contract or accept an agreement until you're fully informed of all the consequences and implications of your decision. But uh, it's virtually impossible here, isn't it? I think so. But I think this is a consequence of some entrenched behaviour that's particularly occurred in digital marketing. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not kind of um, 
bias enough to, to say that you know digital marketing and the relationships between ads and and clients and users has always been transparent. Um, I think for so long now we've seen you know data manipulation, we've seen ad spend manipulation, um, but we've seen we've seen a bunch of things like that. So I think right now though is that for a long time there was a distrust honestly between digital agencies and and clients. And now what we're seeing as, as a repercussion of that is we're seeing a distrust of you know brands and their customers or their prospective customers. Um, similarly with government, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing a complete you know digital distrust of, of how governments uh, are operating. I mean we only have to refer to the, the Australian COVID response and, and the COVID the COVID app where you know the consensus response was that no, I'm not giving the government my data. Um, it almost felt at that point that people were more willing to give their data to Apple than they were to, you know, the Australian government. Well, it's an interesting concept, trust, isn't it? You know, clearly uh, Apple is, uh, in that case, perhaps perceived as more trustworthy than the Australian government or, in fact, any government, because uh, I think governments everywhere have suffered from this. You know, your your, uh, use before about the way or your... Um, mention about uh, the way data was used to manipulate uh, people's perceptions during elections and votes and things uh, is an example of what political parties and interest groups are willing to do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, kind of leaning back into the analogy before around salt and pepper is that what we're seeing now is, I mean, the question we have to ask is about kind of where their priorities sit is, you know, do you want to go back to the days where you're getting Viagra pill advertising, you know, on every single news piece of news content that you're seeing, regardless of whether you need them or not? Um, or would you prefer to start seeing or continue to see um, ads that are of relevant context? Um, you know, for me personally, I'm, you know, glad to see advertisers kind of take that knee down to, to my level and at least attempt to contextualise their service or product um, be it through the use of, you know, wording, tone, context, imagery, it's at least appropriate to who I am. Um, unashamedly, I'm obviously biased towards, you know, and that, that has to be clear, is that I am biased towards you know, the industry as a whole. But at the same time, I, I'd much rather that than receive the junk that we used to receive you know, in, the, in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. Except that, you know, how long have, uh, has the industry had access to cookie data, for instance, and yet there is still a lot of junk advertising, junk, you know, spam advertising, but the, the ability to actually use it to enhance my experience of the process as a yes. user has not actually been delivered. You know? and, and for all the good intentions and for all the hard work of a few players that want to fulfil this, uh, this dream, this nirvana, there's just as many that will completely, you know, take the shortcut or, you know, hit the mass distribution button on the basis that it doesn't matter if I send out 100 million Viagra ads as long as one or two click on it. Yeah, I think this is kind of falling into this battle between people who are buying, who, who are media buying, right, who are buying impressions, who are buying clicks, um, as opposed to those who are, you know, through that kind of reverse cycle of data, uh, basically trying to buy engagement, right? And, and they're really different things. Um, you know, if you want to max out media budgets, I always find it interesting when people say, oh, we get this many impressions and our, our site visitors went up. 
Um, and they're, they're, they're things that are bought. Um, it's effectively a transaction between, you know, an ad server and you know, a, a media buyer. Um, what's far more interesting is understanding why people have clicked, um, what piece of content they really did engage with, where that piece of content falls into user journeys. And I think this is why we're seeing this, this ultimate distrust. I mean, the cookie in itself was framed as a piece of distrust. Um, there's a reason why they called it a cookie and not a tracker. Um, if they said, oh, do you want to accept these trackers on your site, which is going to follow how you, you know, follow how you use this website, I'm telling you right now, people would have said no. But as soon as you put cookie there, oh, what's a cookie? It's a crumbly, delicious treat that, you know, that a cookie monster on Sesame Street used to have. It was a very um, pointed decision to call it that as opposed to, to anything of its, you know, actual use. And yet, if you look deeper into it, uh, it was because it left a trail of crumbs all over your uh, internet footprint, right? Absolutely. That's there you why go. it was called the cookie, because uh, mm. they could follow the crumbs. Exactly right. And I think, you know, kind of falling into, if they had caught a tracker or caught it what it was and, and kind of not disguised it under a, a metaphor, um, I think would be in a very different position where we are now. And I, it's not a criticism of, of that decision. It's more so an objective kind of at least analysis of, of why we're at this point. I mean, we're asking users to trust us when the very nature of cookies themselves was delivered under a veil. Yeah. Look, uh, you mentioned Conundrum, which is your AI platform, um, mm -hmm. and it's primarily to empower marketers to understand more about the customer journey, right? Effectively, I mean, it's it's kind of stepping, it's kind of being built into alpha, uh, kind of in the, the midst of finalising into alpha, but it's effectively leaning into our data science experience that we have here at Magic and we've, we've built out a new predictive modelling system that kind of relies on uh, our own kind of, it's blood, sweat and tears have gone into this, but our own um, variation of Markov modelling um, to effectively understand how um, piece of advertising influence the broader journey. Um, you know, again, knowing last click, particularly how the cookies are gone, last click doesn't matter as much. The more you understand about how users behave or how users interact with your site um, across a variety of different um, channels, online or offline, um, is really what drives this. Um, you know, Conundrum will be designed, um, you know, for a launch in you know, only a few months, but Conundrum will be designed to uh, enable marketers to not only shift their thinking to be that of a CFO, but will also allow them to have an internal data science resource that is both software and as a service um, to help answer problems um, around which part of my marketing is working. I mean, the reason why we've called it Conundrum is that, you know, the, the adage of you know, half my marketing spend is working, I don't know which half, is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is... That's, a, that's been in a, a century-old conundrum for the marketing industry for a long, long time. And as cookies start to disappear, conundrum's aim is to help, to help empower marketers to go, right, you know, just because I can't track um, the performance of a, of a cinema ad or just because I can't track the performance of a, of a billboard or just because I can't track what a YouTube ad does, doesn't mean that you can't um, have a significant predictability behind its performance using some very complex mathematic modelling. Um, and I guess by tying this into our overall approach around uh, personalised advertising and, and taking that knee, um, 
that's where we're hoping that these two worlds will collide um, and that we can start really empowering people to make decisions that have relative certainty as opposed to just guessing. Now, we've had some uh, high-profile media coverage on where, you know, uh, predictive modelling and personalisation has uh, led to embarrassing uh, embarrassing outcomes. Yeah, and and while it may have been apocryphal, you know, the famous story about sending uh, Target, I think it was the report said in the New York Times, sent a, uh, a message to a household congratulating them on the impending pregnancy that the team yes. had informed <laughs> the parents of, right? Yes. The thing about AI is it really can be in, used in a number of ways. One of it is to help in, you know, sort through huge amounts of data to then present it in a way that can inform decisions. The other way is that it can actually be set up to make decisions in real time for you in mm. situations where human beings couldn't possibly be making that number of decisions that quickly. Well, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're kind of at a point where it's a super interesting um, kind of side that we're going to start building up when it comes into MarTech. But what we're seeing is that this knowledge, particularly around mathematics and predictability, it's been around for quite a long time. It's only now that we're kind of reaching or starting to get to the realm of reaching that point where, you know, a computer can do it. Um, and I think, uh, yes, you know, there's been some embarrassing pairings um, or assumptions made between two separate data points, you know, i.e. someone visiting a baby bunting website or whatever it might be, um, and then subsequently re you know, receiving emails or, or mail posts around, hey, you know, what, what car seat do you need? I think really what we need to start leaning into that, you know, to be certain is to be a fool um, and there's too many people or too many businesses or business models promising certainty in, in, in an uncertain world. But the argument that can be made is, is that you know, by having 30 or 40% more confidence behind a decision is better than having zero. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think uh, where I've seen the application of AI informing decisions is much more interesting than where it starts making decisions because the, the AI can only be as good as whoever it is that programs it, right? Mm -hmm. And how quickly you can learn. Um, you know, domain knowledge is one of those core things that really um, many businesses ignore. I and mean, particularly at the advertising landscape, when you speak to any well-informed CMO, and, you know, the unpredictability around how humans behave, um, you know, the argument is that if you ask people what their internet history is, it's a lot different to what it actually is. Um, you know, so to understand that intent, to understand that behaviour is is foolish, I think. Yeah. So what about the ethics of AI? I mean, you've mentioned, you know, and I think it's quite a good point that there is, you know, ethical considerations certainly around the collection, storage and usage of people's data. But what about when decisions start getting made uh, and, and, you know, to the point that, data first you know so these are all decisions based on the available data is there an ethical issue associated with that absolutely so um when i started you know previously in, in, a, in a previous life i worked across some very interesting innovation products you know high pollute spacex and the like and one of the prerequisites to actually um even beginning to, to work there right or to conceptualize the work there was to read a particular book by nick bostrom 
um, which is effectively around super intelligence, right? And it's like the past, the dangers, the strategies behind what that means. Um, he's a Swedish philosopher, yeah, 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 very smart guy. Um, but the, the argument he makes is that, you know, once we do create that super AI, the last thing that uh, humans will ever create because AIs will learn from our past mistakes very quickly. Um, they'll learn um, processes of flows or efficiencies, you know, in milliseconds as opposed to generations. Um, and, you know, without kind of stepping into the whole I am legend thing is that, you know, it, for us right now in, in 2021, you know, the ethics also start to have, start to, have to consider around jobs. Um, you know, will AI take jobs? Um, you know, the, there's been a fair bit of content recently, which we talked about in the office around you know, legal departments. You know, what will clerics do? You know, what, what will what will war clerks do where, you know, they are collecting data, um, you, know, in, you know, finding precedents to cases when incident AI can effectively scour through thousands and thousands and thousands of cases and obviously come to that same conclusion in a, a millisecond. Um, yeah, it's interesting, of, uh, you know, because... The proponents say, well, it gets rid of all the boring, you know, jobs and allows people to focus on the really interesting stuff. Except that there's a lot of people that are actively employed in doing those boring, tedious tasks. That is exactly. their, their life, you know. Um, I know the World Economic Forum is, uh, is doing a lot of work in this space and they say the solution is actually uh, having an economic structure that isn't based on the 40-hour week, that full employment is people working a lot less. I mean, that, that's that's an interesting topic. Uh, it, that's going to be a, one of those generational shifts. You know, it's a, it's how Denmark kind of moved from hyper-conservatism to kind of social democracy. Um, these aren't things that can be done from bottom up. I mean, this is this is one of those few things, you know, instead of, you know, I all believe in fight for the people and all that, but this is one of those things where it's really got to come down from collective um, upper echelon and pushing that down. Um, when it comes to AI, particularly, um, you know, we're seeing businesses now. I know SpaceX specifically, like the, it's it's the be all end all of how they model. Um, it's the be all end all of how they decide whether to move the launch time by you know one minute or one hour or a day or a week or abandon it entirely. Um, humans can probably make that decision, to be honest. Um, but, you know, when a human makes a decision, we think about many things. We think about, oh, what will people think of me if I come up with this answer? What will, people, what will happen to me or my family if I get this wrong? Um, the benefit of AI is, is that you can scream at a computer all you like, but in the end you're screaming at a computer. Um, it's like when you're trying to disagree with the, uh, the uh, GPS when it's telling you to turn left and you want to go right, you know. Doesn't matter how many times you tell it it's wrong, it, it keeps telling you to go left. It's the same as capture as well. When you say, you know, you select the trees in these images, and you're definitely selecting oh. all the trees, and then you end up having an argument about it with the computer that to prove yourself that you aren't a robot. But isn't the issue there that it's fundamentally human? I mean, you know, I wonder if they could ever uh, set up an AI that can decide on the ethical stance of anything. Because you know, my uh, my personal definition of ethics is that every single decision we make will do some harm. What we need to do is find the decisions that do the least amount of harm. And that's what an ethical decision would be. I think so, but then it, it's, you're definitely right. It's kind of leaning into this kind of commonality, this theme that seems to be recurring, this conversation around 
consequence, right? It's kind of measuring the severity of the consequence, um, be it in an ad transaction, um, be it BHP trying to figure out whether or not they buy oil, they, they acquire oil at 9am or, or 10am, um, whether hospitals need to you know, have certain beds in intensive care units or shrink down the specialisation. Um, you know, th- these are all things that, that te- people need to take into account. I mean, we're even seeing charities now trying to, who are joining in on the AI conversation um, to understand whether or not you know, a particular creative would trigger some form of compassion, right? And, you know, people being compassionate towards charities is a good thing. Um, but as soon as you shift that use case to a separate um, business, um, there's something that's probably far more capitalistic or more focused around capitalism, it can become a negative, yeah, um, yeah particularly commercial. Um, and, and this is where, you know, this is where it's kind of coming down to this decision of, look, do we need to start having you know, authorising bodies that overlook or oversee um, or who are integrated into one, how we use data, how we store it, and really how, you know, which is effectively how AI modelling is built upon. Um, and the consequences of using AI to make decisions. Um, you know, the argument with Tesla that always came up was, you know, if you're driving at 60 kilometres an hour and, and a child crosses the road, who's the car protecting? Is the car protecting the driver or is it protecting the child on the road? Um, and, and this, and that is almost like a paradox. And so there's no real right answer there. Um, but you know, in the instance where that decision is made to protect one or the other, who's at fault? Yeah. So Jordan, yeah, you've already you're a self-confessed champion of the uh, the industry. You know, you believe the role of uh, of big data. You believe uh, that you know building uh, more accurate attribution models and predictive models will make it much more effective. What do you see as the shiny light on the hill? You know, where where should we be heading? We should effectively be heading to a point where users understand. The value of the data they hold, um, they can, and you know, I think that Nirvana really is, and we're seeing this in crypto circles already. A few clients doing that, where it's you know a, a democratized or decentralized um, transaction. You know, if you read an article, you should get paid, right? Because you're giving up your data to read that article. You're transacting, right? Your use. Um, subsequently, as well, you know, the journalist who wrote the article should get paid. Um, the publisher should get paid. Um, that's where I think Nirvana is. I think Nirvana is is when the users themselves get paid um, to share their data um, and allow or agree to whatever extent is is understandable um, where they can basically sell their data back to to these brands so they can serve them relevancy. Uh, I do think that's, you know, five to six years off. Um, but I believe it's probably the most important conversation when it comes to advertising, um, not cookies, you know, not media spend, um, not how much media spend is digital going to be because they're self-prophesizing sort of answers or questions. It's more around how do we make sure users are comfortable? Um, how do we educate users to be more, more aware of what digital marketing is and what transaction and data is? And I think, you know, we'll fast forward 50 years and everyone will know everything about data. Um, just unfortunately at this point, um, I don't think we do. Yeah, I think uh, it's one of those terms that everyone's uh, uh, using without actually truly understanding the uh, 
the basis of it, what it what okay. it really means. So on that basis, you know, of moving towards a, a nirvana in, in marketing and advertising, what's the what's the thing that marketers and their agencies should stop doing now, and what should they be doing more of? I think they should be asking why, and you know, even in you know weekly whip conversations um, where an agency or, or or a brand or even just that that, that relationship. It's like as soon as someone says, do it this way, yeah, the question always should be why. Um, and I guess if you can't prove that, um, that claim, um, if you can't back it up with evidence, and there's no excuse now to not be able to back it up, um, it shouldn't be added, it shouldn't be admissible into the, you know, into, into the broader discussion. And I think what that does is it puts a lot of pressure on uh, agencies to ensure that they are tracking everything can be tracked, um, that they are justifying decision making um, on the back of data, on the back of modelling, on the back of something tangible. Um, but what doing those two things creates is it creates like a harmony, right? It creates a, a a commonality or a single language between agency or digital marketer and and brand, and it removes any of that smoke, any of that fog any of that uncertainty, which I'm sure happens many times on client side, be like, oh, is he, has the agency or has this particular person got my best interest at heart or the brand's best interest at heart? Um, but if you can kind of open that discussion and start it with, hey, look, we've built you know, this model that kind of shows you, you know, a, an implied outcome we think will happen from this. And yes, it's not, obviously it's not certain, but at least there's some kind of increase in likelihood. Um, which should only further um, encourage people to make more risky decisions. And I think what you know by people making more risky decisions in advertising, and not mean not meaning creative, but more so just in terms of how they do things, we should start to see progression happen again. We should start to see um, people taking that step. You know, we should start to see cutting edge come back. Um, and, and I think it, it's something that you know I'm desperate for for brands to start doing. And I mean, I really want to see you know. Australian leaders in this space kind of not accept the status quo and and continually push that ceiling higher and higher or even break it. Um, and that's what we'll see when we start having a, you know, a proper and actual data-first philosophy, not just I look at Google Analytics. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You know, my, one of my favourite quotes is you know, about the insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different outcome. I guess... What you're saying is that you know you can have access to data that informs your decisions and allows you to think outside the rut of doing the same thing over and over again. Try trying something new, not because it's 100% guaranteed, but because now at least you have a degree of certainty of its uh, efficacy. Absolutely, and if you're going to fail, um, despite you know is this, this lifting or perceived lifting in cancer culture that even exists, but um, users, users for, for most for most parts are pretty forgiving. Um, you know, I think it's all about experimenting, pushing the boundaries, adopting. You know, a, a, a adopting data science. The best thing we want to see is that we start seeing all of these brands start working with data scientists. I mean, you know, whilst we're an advocate for ourselves, um, first and foremost, we're advocates for, for data scientists, for programmers, for mathematicians to get involved in marketing. I mean, data scientists are often used in, in big banks or big corps to work in risk or work in finance. 
But mm. forgetting that the marketing spend is still in these circumstances a significant portion of what the budget is. So we want to start getting the bright minds of mathematicians and data scientists into those verticals and into marketing workshops. And I think if we can start doing that, you know, we're bang on for, for, for innovation. We're bang on for progression. Um, you know, we want to encourage smart minds to get excited about marketing, and that's effectively what magic and conundrum do. Uh, and so, you know, part of the problem, part of the resistance has been that, uh, you know, a lot of times mathematics science has been positioned artificially as the opposite of the sort of art and intuition that marketing was traditionally based on. You know, the, in business, marketing has often been seen as the sort of, you know, wacko area of business because it was all about, you know, gut instinct. But uh, as you say, today, there's access to huge amounts and incredibly insightful analysis. Obviously, the work that you're doing with uh, Magic and part of the, uh, the challenge of what you're solving with Conundrum. Exactly right. I mean, you throw Albert Einstein into 2021, you put a cardigan on him, you put some cool shoes on. Dude looks like a creative to me. Um, and I think, you know, if we can start you know, accepting that, encouraging it and start using, you know, using these smart minds for, for, for things that are outside their remit, outside their box. I really think that the questions they can at least ask will uncover, you know, huge amounts of potential, let alone what they can answer. I think uh, the classic image of uh, Albert Einstein, he wouldn't get a, uh, a job in advertising because he was way too old. I, I think if you're over <laughs> 40, you're seen as uh, old school. But anyway, look, uh, Jordan, this has been a terrific conversation. I think this this intersection of science and art is a, uh, a you know the area that's going to create huge opportunities and potential, not in the future but right now. And mm -hmm. a lot of people are talking about it, but I think a lot of a lot of companies, especially, are struggling with it. I think even you know even the big ones. And I think it's it's part of the how we start to break away from the you know, break out of this egg. You know, how do we start getting scientists, mathematicians excited about marketing? And and the way to do that is to interconnect what they do with business outcomes. I think so many mathematicians and data scientists are so far removed from what their amazing work actually does. Us, but not only are they not inspired, um, but then, you know, it kind of becomes this gap between, oh, look, that's just too complicated and, you know, marketing teams can't deal with that. I can, I can, I can barely read the, the dashboard that the, the agency has. Um, I think if we can kind of work on, on bringing this together, um, not only will, you know, you, you or I learn a hell of a lot more around it, about how this works and what these guys are into and girls are into, um, but I think the, the overall outcome will be, hey, look, look at this question we've asked. We've never asked this question about our business before. And, you know, we can now at least position ourselves with the backup of mathematicians and data scientists to actually answer it or at least try to answer it. Mm. Um, and I think it really, if I could put one thing on where I see a shift in, in advertising and marketing and consumer relations and, you know, user relations probably has become kind of get further to that is that mathematics is, is a reason why mathematics has been involved in society for hundreds and hundreds of years and it's because it works right you know it's because it, it asks questions um it aims to ask questions and disprove or prove it um there's no bias like we're not trying to 
push an answer in push an answer to a question that we want to answer. Um, we're more opening up the floor to go, cool, here's the question. How would we go about proving it or disproving it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why they're called mathematical proofs because they exactly. either prove or disprove with the numbers. Look, uh, yeah, I love mathematics. It's a, it's a language that uh, few people have mastered and those that do uh, are phenomenal in the way they think. Hey, Jordan, thanks for your time. Just one last question before we go, and that is, uh, you know, we started talking about ethics, uh, and there's been a lot of accusations flying around, but from your perspective, which company or person has been the least ethical in the marketing space when it comes to data? (laughs) 